In the following words, the scriptures declared the state to be a divinely established institution. Let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Therefore, he that resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that withstand shall receive to themselves judgment. For rulers are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. And wouldst thou have no fear of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise for the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, an avenger for wrath to him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause ye pay tribute also, for they are ministers of God's service, attending continually upon this very thing. Render to all their dues, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. No one type of government, whether democracy, republic, or monarchy, was thought to be divinely ordained for any certain age or people, although Calvinism showed the preference for the republican type. Whatever the system of government, says Meter, be it monarchy or democracy, or any other form, in each case the ruler, or rulers, was to act as God's representative and to administer the affairs of government in accordance with God's laws. The fundamental principle supplied at the same time the very highest incentive for the preservation of law and order among its citizens. Subjects were for God's sake to render obedience to the higher powers, whichever these might be. Hence Calvinism made for highly stabilized governments. On the other hand, this very principle of the sovereignty of God operated as a mighty defense of the liberties of the subject citizens against tyrannical rulers. Whenever sovereigns ignored the will of God, trampled upon the rights of the governed, and became tyrannical, it became the privilege and the duty of the subjects in view of the higher responsibility of the supreme sovereign God to refuse obedience and even, if necessary, to dispose the tyrant through the lesser authorities appointed by God for the defense of the rights of the governed. The Calvinistic ideas concerning governments and rulers have been ably expressed by J.C. Monsma in the following lucid paragraph. Governments are instituted by God through the instrumentality of the people. No Kaiser or President has any power inherent in himself. Whatever power he possesses, whatever sovereignty he exercises, is power and sovereignty derived from the great source above. No might but right, and right springing from the eternal fountain of justice. For the Calvinists it is extremely easy to respect the laws and ordinances of the government. If the government were nothing but a group of men bound to carry out the wishes of a popular majority, his freedom-loving soul would rebel. But now, to his mind, and according to his fixed belief, back of the government stands God, and before him he kneels in deepest reverence. Here also lies the fundamental reason for that profound and almost fanatical love of freedom, 
also the political freedom which has always been a characteristic of the genuine Calvinist. The government is God's servant. That means that as men all government officials stand on an equal footing with their subordinates, have no claim to superiority in any sense whatever. For exactly the same reason the Calvinist gives preference to a republican form of government over any other type. In no other form of government does the sovereignty of God, the derivative character of government powers, and the equality of men as men find a clearer and more eloquent expression. The theology of the Calvinists exalted one sovereign and humbled all other sovereigns before his awful majesty. The divine right of kings and the infallible decrees of popes could not long endure amid a people who placed sovereignty in God alone. But while this theology infinitely exalted God as the almighty ruler of heaven and earth and humbled all men before him, it enhanced the dignity of the individual and taught him that all men as men were equal. The Calvinist feared God. In fearing God, he feared nobody else. Knowing himself to have been chosen in the councils of eternity and marked for the glories of heaven, he possessed something which dissipated the feeling of personal homage for men and which dulled the luster of all earthly grandeur. If a proud aristocracy traced its lineage through generations of high-born ancestry, the Calvinists, with a loftier pride, invaded the invisible world and from the book of life brought down the record of the noblest enfranchisement decreed from eternity by the King of Kings. By a higher than any earthly lineage, they were heaven's noblemen, because God's sons and priests, joint heirs with Christ, kings and priests unto God by a divine anointing and consecration. Put the truth of the sovereignty of God into a man's mind and heart and you put iron in his blood. The reformed faith has rendered a most valuable service in teaching the individual his rights. In striking contrast with these democratic and republican tendencies which are found to be inherent in the reformed faith we find that Arminianism has a very pronounced aristocratic tendency. In the Presbyterian and Reformed churches, the elder votes in Presbytery or Synod or General Assembly on full equality with his pastor. But in Arminian churches, the power is largely in the hands of the clergy, and the laymen have very little real authority. Episcopacy stresses rule by the hierarchy. Arminianism and Roman Catholicism, which is practically Arminian, thrive under monarchy, but there Calvinism finds its life cramped. On the other hand, Romanism especially does not thrive in a republic, but there Calvinism finds itself most at home. An aristocratic form of church government tends toward monarchy in civil affairs, while a republican form of church government tends toward democracy in civil affairs. Says McFartridge, Arminianism is unfavorable to civil liberty, and Calvinism is unfavorable to despotism. The despotic rulers of former days were not slow to observe the correctness of these propositions, and claiming the divine right of kings, feared Calvinism as republicanism itself. 9. Calvinism in Education Again, 
history bears every clear testimony that Calvinism and education have been intimately associated. Wherever Calvinism has gone, it has carried the school with it and has given a powerful impulse to popular education. It is a system which demands intellectual manhood. In fact, we may say that its very existence is tied up with the education of the people. Mental training is required to master the system and to trace out all that it involves. It makes the strongest possible appeal to the human reason and insists that man must love God not only with the whole heart but also with the whole mind. Calvin held that a true faith must be an intelligent faith and experience has shown that piety without learning is in the long run about as dangerous as learning without piety. He says clearly that the acceptance and diffusion of his scheme of doctrine was dependent not only upon the training of the men who were to expound it, but also upon the intelligence of the great masses of humanity who were to accept it. Calvin crowned his work in Geneva in the establishment of the academy. Thousands of pilgrim pupils from continental Europe and from the British Isles sat at his feet and then carried his doctrines into every corner of Christendom. Knox returned from Geneva fully convinced that the education of the masses was the strongest bulwark of Protestantism and the surest foundation of the state. With Romanism goes the priest, with Calvinism goes the teacher, is an old saying, the truthfulness of which will not be denied by anyone who has examined the facts. This Calvinistic love for learning, putting mind above money, has inspired countless numbers of Calvinistic families in Scotland, in England, in Holland, and in America to pinch themselves to the bone in order to educate their children. The famous dictum of Carlyle, that any being with capacity for knowledge should die ignorant, this I call a tragedy, expresses the idea which is Calvinistic to the core. Wherever Calvinism has gone, their knowledge and learning have been encouraged and there a sturdy race of thinkers have been trained. Calvinists have not been the builders of great cathedrals, but they have been the builders of schools, colleges, and universities. When the Puritans from England and the Covenanters from Scotland and the Reformed from Holland and Germany came to America, they brought with them not only the Bible and the Westminster Confession, but also the school. And that is why our American Calvinism never dreads the skeptic's puny hands, while near her school the church spire stands, nor fears the blinded bigot's rule, while near her church spire stands the school. Our three American universities of greatest historical importance, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, were originally founded by Calvinists as strong Calvinistic schools designed to give students a sound basis in theology as well as in other branches of learning. Harvard, established in 1636, was intended primarily to be a training school for ministers, and more than half of its first graduating classes went into the ministry. Yale, sometimes referred to as the mother of colleges, was for a considerable period a rigid Puritan institution. In Princeton, founded by the Scotch Presbyterians, had a thoroughly Calvinistic foundation. We boast, says Brancroft, of our common schools, Calvin was the father of popular education, the inventor of the system of free schools. 
Wherever Calvinism gained dominion, he says again, it invoked intelligence for the people, and in every parish planted the common school. Our boasted common school system, says Smith, is indebted for its existence to that system of influences which followed from the Geneva of Calvin through Scotland and Holland to America. And for the first two hundred years of our history, almost every college and seminary of learning and almost every academy and common school was built and sustained by Calvinists. The relationship which Calvinism bears to education has been well stated in the two following paragraphs by Professor H. H. Meter of Calvin College. Science and art were gifts of God's common grace and were to be used and developed as such. Nature was looked upon as God's handiwork, the embodiment of his ideas, in its pure form and reflection of his virtues. God was the unifying thought of all science, since all was the unfolding of his plan. But along with such theoretical reasons, there are very practical reasons why the Calvinist has always been intensely interested in education, and why great schools for children as well as schools of higher learning sprang up side by side with Calvinistic churches and why Calvinists were in so large measure the vanguard of the modern universal education movement. These practical reasons are closely associated with their religion. The Roman Catholics might conveniently do without the education of the masses. For them, the clergy, in distinction from the laity, were the ones who were to decide upon matters of church government and doctrine. Hence, these interests did not require the training of the masses, for salvation, all that the layman needed was an implied faith in what the church believed. It was not necessary to be able to give an intelligent account of the tenets of his faith. At the services, not the sermon but the sacrament was the important conveyor of the blessings of salvation. The sermon was less needed. And this sacrament again did not require intelligence, since it operated ex opero operato. For the Calvinists, matters were just reversed. The government of the church was placed in the hands of the elders, laymen, and these had to decide upon the matters of church policy and the weighty matters of doctrine. Furthermore, the layman himself had the grave duty, without the intermediation of a sacerdotal order, to work out his own salvation, and could not suffice with an implied faith in what the church believed. He must read his Bible. He must know his creed, and it was a highly intellectual creed at that. Even for the Lutheran, education of the masses was not as urgent as for the Calvinist. It is true, the Lutheran also placed every man before the personal responsibility to work out his own salvation. But the laity were, in the Lutheran circles, excluded from the office of church government, and hence also from the duty of deciding upon matters of doctrine. From these considerations it is evident why the Calvinist must be a staunch advocate of education. If on the one hand God was to be owned as sovereign in the field of science, and if the Calvinist's very religious system required the education of the masses for its existence, it need not surprise us that the Calvinist pressed learning to the limit. Education is a question of to be or not to be for the Calvinist. The traditionally high standards of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches for ministerial training are worthy of notice. 
while many other churches ordain men as ministers and missionaries and allow them to preach with very little education, the Presbyterian and Reformed churches insist that the candidate for the ministry shall be a college graduate and that he shall have studied for at least two years under some approved professor of theology. As a result, a larger proportion of these ministers have been capable of managing the affairs of the influential city churches. This may mean fewer ministers, but it also means a better prepared and a better paid ministry. 10. John Calvin John Calvin was born July 10, 1509, at Naon, France, an ancient cathedral city about 70 miles northeast of Paris. His father, a man of rather hard and severe character, held the position of apostolic secretary to the Bishop of Nyon and was intimate with the best families of the neighborhood. His mother was noted for her beauty and piety, but died in his early youth. He received the best education which France at that time could give, studying successively at the three leading universities of Orleans, Borges, in Paris from 1528 to 1533. His father intended to prepare him for the legal profession since that commonly raised those who followed it to positions of wealth and influence. But not feeling any particular calling to that field, young Calvin turned to study the theology and there found the sphere of labor for which he was particularly fitted by natural endowment and personal choice. He is described as having been of a shy and retiring nature, very studious and punctual in his work, animated by a strict sense of duty and exceedingly religious. He early showed himself possessed of an intellect capable of clear, convincing argument and logical analysis. Through excessive industry, he stored his mind with valuable information that undermined his health he advanced so rapidly that he was occasionally asked to take the place of the professors and was considered by the other students as a doctor rather than an auditor. He was at this time a devout Catholic of unblemished character. A brilliant career as a humanist or lawyer or churchman was opening before him when he was suddenly converted to Protestantism and cast in his lot with the poor persecuted sect. Without any intention on his part, and even against his own desire, Calvin became the head of the evangelical party in Paris in less than a year after his conversion. His depth of knowledge and earnestness of speech were such that no one could hear him without being forcibly impressed. For the present he remained in the Catholic Church, hoping to reform it from within rather than from without. Schaff reminds us that all reformers were born, baptized, confirmed, and educated in the historic Catholic Church, which cast them out, as the apostles were circumcised and trained in the synagogue, which cast them out. The zeal and earnestness of the new reformer did not long go unchallenged, and it soon became necessary for Calvin to escape for his life. The following account of his flight from Paris is given by the church historian Philip Chaff. Nicholas Copp, the son of the distinguished royal physician William Copp of Basel, and a friend of Calvin was elected rector of the university, October 10, 1533, and delivered the usual inaugural oration on All Saints' Day, November 1st, 
before a large assembly in the church of the Matherians. This oration at the request of the new rector had been prepared by Calvin. It was a plea for a reformation on the basis of the New Testament and a bold attack on the scholastic theologians of the day who were represented as a set of sophists ignorant of the gospel. The suborn in the Parliament regarded this academic oration as a manifesto of war upon the Catholic Church and condemned it to the flames. Kopp was warned and fled to his relatives in Basel. Three hundred crowns were offered for his capture, dead or alive. Calvin, the real author of the mischief, is said to have descended from a window by means of sheets and escaped from Paris in the garb of a vine-dresser with a hole upon his shoulders. His rooms were searched and his books and papers were seized by the police. Twenty-four innocent Protestants were burned alive in public places of the city from November 10, 1534 to May 5, 1535. Many more were fined, imprisoned, and tortured, and considerable number among them, Calvin and Dutillet, fled to Sarsberg. For nearly three years Calvin wandered as a fugitive evangelist under assumed names from place to place in southern France, Switzerland, and Italy, till he reached Geneva as his final destination. Shortly after, if not before, the first edition of his institutes appeared in March 1536. Calvin and Louis du Tillet crossed the Alps into Italy, where the liberty and artistic renaissance had its origin. There he labored as an evangelist until the Inquisition began its work of crushing out both the Renaissance and the Reformation as two kindred serpents. He then bent his way, probably through Asota, and over the great St. Bernard to Switzerland. From Basel he made a last visit to his native town of Nyon in order to make a final settlement of certain family affairs. Then with his younger brother Antoni and his sister Marie he left France forever, hoping to settle in Basel or Strasbourg and to lead there the quiet life of a scholar and author. Owing to the fact that a state of war existed between Charles V and Francis I, the direct route through Lorraine was closed, so he made a circuitous journey through Geneva. Calvin intended to stop only a night in Geneva, but Providence had decreed otherwise. His presence was made known to Farrell, the Genevan reformer, who instinctively felt that Calvin was the man to complete and save the Reformation in Geneva. A fine description of this meeting of Calvin and Farrell is given by Chaff. Says he, Farrell at once called on Calvin and held him fast as by divine command. Calvin protested, pleading his youth and inexperience, his need of further study, his natural timidity, and his bashfulness, which unfitted him for public action. But all in vain. Farrell, who burned of a marvelous zeal to advance the gospel, threatened him with the curse of Almighty God if he preferred his studies to the work of the Lord and his own interest to the cause of Christ. Calvin was terrified and shaken by these words of the fearless evangelist and felt as if God from on high had stretched out his hand. He submitted and accepted the call to the ministry as teacher and pastor of the Evangelical Church of Geneva. 
Calvin was 25 years younger than Luther and Zwingli and had the great advantage of building on the foundation which they had laid. The first ten years of Calvin's public career were contemporary with the last ten of Luther's, although the two never met personally. Calvin was intimate with Melanchthon, however, and kept up a correspondence with him until his death. At the time Calvin came upon the scene, it had not yet been determined whether Luther was to be the hero of a great success or the victim of a great failure. Luther had produced new ideas. Calvin's work was to construct them into a system to preserve and develop what had been so nobly begun. The Protestant movement lacked unity and was in danger of being sunk in the quicksand of doctrinal dispute, but was saved from that fate chiefly by the new impulse which was given to it by the reformer in Geneva. The Catholic Church worked as one mighty unit and was seeking to stamp out, by fair means or foul, the different Protestant groups which had arisen in the North. Zwingli had seen this danger and had tried to unite the Protestants against their common foe. At Marburg, after pleadings with tears in his eyes, he extended to Luther the hand of fellowship, regardless of their difference of opinion as to the mode of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. But Luther refused it under the restraint of a narrow dogmatic conscience. Calvin also working in Switzerland with abundant opportunity to realize the closeness of the Italian church saw the need for union and labor to keep Protestantism together. To Kramer in England he wrote, I long for one holy communion of the members of Christ. As for me, if I can be of a service, I would gladly cross ten seas in order to bring about this unity. His influence as exerted through his books, letters, and students were powerfully felt throughout the various countries, and the statement that he saved the Protestant movement from destruction seems to be no exaggeration. For thirty years Calvin's one absorbing interest was the advancement of the Reformation. Reed says, He toiled for it to the utmost limit of his strength, fought for it with a courage that never quailed, suffered for it with a fortitude that never wavered, and was ready at any moment to die for it. He literally poured every drop of his life into it unhesitantly, unsparingly. History will be searched in vain to find a man who gave himself to one definite purpose with more unalterable persistence and with more lavish self-abandon than Calvin gave himself to the Reformation of the 16th century. Probably no servant of Christ since the days of the Apostles has been at the same time so much loved and hated, admired and abhorred, praised and blamed, blessed and cursed as the faithful, fearless, an immortal Calvin. Living in a fiercely polemic age and standing on the watchtower of the reform movement in Western Europe, he was the observed of all observers and was exposed to attacks from every quarter. Religious and sectarian passions are the deepest and strongest and in view of the good and the bad which is known to exist in human nature in this world, we need not be surprised at the reception given Calvin's teachings and writings. When only 26 years of age, Calvin published in Latin his Institutes of the Christian Religion. The first edition contained in brief outline all the essential elements of his system, and considering the youthfulness of the author was a marvel of intellectual precocity. It was later enlarged to five times the size of the original and published in French, 
but never did he make any radical departure from any of the doctrines set forth in the first edition. Almost immediately the Institutes took first place as the best exhibition and defense of the Protestant cause. Other writings have dealt with certain phases of the movement, but here was one that treated it as a unit. The value of such a gift to the Reformation, says Reed, cannot easily be exaggerated. Protestants and Romanists bore equal testimony to its worth. The one hailed it as the greatest boon, the other execrated it with the bitterest curses. It was burnt by order of the Sabrone at Paris, in other places and everywhere it called forth the fiercest assaults of tongue and pen. Florimond de Vermont, a Roman Catholic theologian, calls it the Koran, the Talmud of heresy, the foremost cause of our downfall. Kamakot, another Roman Catholic, testifies that it was the common arsenal from which the opponents of the old church borrowed their keenest weapons in that no writing of the Reformation era was more feared by Roman Catholics, more zealously fought against, and more bitterly pursued than Calvin's Institutes. Its popularity was evidenced by the fact that edition followed edition in quick succession. It was translated into most of the languages of Western Europe. It became the common textbook of the schools of the Reformed churches and furnished the material out of which their creeds were made. Of all the services which Calvin rendered to humanity, says Dr. Warfield, they were neither few nor small. The greatest was undoubtedly his gift to it afresh of the system of religious thought, quickened into new life by the forces of his genius. The Institutes were at once greeted by the Protestants with enthusiastic praise as the clearest, strongest, most logical, and most convincing defenses of Christian doctrines since the days of the Apostles. Chaff characterizes them well when he says that in them Calvin gave a systematic exposition of the Christian religion in general and a vindication of the evangelical faith in particular with the apologetic and practical aim of defending the Protestant believers against calumny and persecution to which they were then exposed, especially in France. The work is pervaded by an intense earnestness and by fearless and severe argumentation which properly subordinates reason and tradition to the supreme authority of the scriptures. It is admittedly the greatest book of the century, and through it the Calvinistic principles were propagated on an immense scale. Albrecht Richkel calls it the masterpiece of Protestant theology. Dr. Warfield tells us that after three centuries and a half, it retains its unquestionable preeminence as the greatest and most influential of all dogmatic treatises. And again, he says, even from the point of mere literature, it holds a position so supreme in its class that everyone who would fain know the world's best books must make himself familiar with it. What Thucydides is among Greek, or Gibbon among 18th century English historians, what Plato is among philosophers, or the Iliad among epics, or Shakespeare among dramatics, that Calvin's Institutes is among theological treatises. It threw consternation into the Roman Church and was a powerful unifying force among Protestants. It showed Calvin to be the ablest controversialist in Protestantism and as the most formidable antagonist 
with which the Romanists had to contend. In England, the Institutes enjoyed an almost unrivaled popularity and was used as a textbook in the universities. It was soon translated into nine different European languages and it is simply due to a serious lack of the majority of historical accounts that its importance has not been appreciated in recent years. A few weeks after the publication of the Institutes, Bucher, who ranks third among reformers in Germany, wrote to Calvin, It is evident that the Lord had elected you as his organ for the bestowment of the richest fullness of blessing to his church. Luther wrote no systematic theology. Although his writings were voluminous, they were on scattered subjects, and many of them deal with the practical problems of his day. It was thus left to Calvin to give a systematic exhibition of the evangelical faith. Calvin was, first of all, a theologian. He and Augustine easily rank as the two outstanding systematic expounders of the Christian system since St. Paul. Melanchthon, who was himself the prince of Lutheran theologians and who after the death of Luther was recognized as the preceptor of Germany, called Calvin preeminently the theologian. If the language of the Institute seemed harsh in places, we should remember that this was the mark and weakness of theological controversy in that age. The times in which Calvin lived were polemic. The Protestants were engaged in a life and death struggle with Rome, and the provocations to impatience were numerous and grievous. Calvin, however, was surpassed by Luther in the use of harsh language, as will readily be seen by an examination of Luther's work, The Bondage of the Will, which was a polemic written against the free will ideas of Erasmus. And furthermore, none of the Protestant writings of the period were so harsh and abusive as were the Roman Catholic decrees of excommunication, anathemas, etc., which were directed against the Protestants. In addition to the Institutes, Calvin wrote commentaries on nearly all of the books of both the Old and New Testaments. These commentaries in the English translation comprise 55 large volumes and taken in connection with his other works are nothing less and marvelous. The quality of these writings was such that they soon took first place among exegetical works on the scriptures, and among all the older commentators no one is more frequently quoted by the best modern scholars than is Calvin. He was beyond all question the greatest exegete of the Reformation period. As Luther was the prince of translators, so Calvin was the prince of commentators. Furthermore, in order to estimate the true value of Calvin's commentaries, it must be borne in mind that they were based on principles of exegesis which were rare in his day. He led the way, says R.C. Reed, in discarding the custom of allegorizing the scriptures, a custom which had come down from the earliest centuries of Christianity and which had been sanctioned by the greatest names of the church, from Origen to Luther, a custom which converts the Bible into a nose of wax and makes a lively fancy the prime qualifications of an exegete. Calvin adhered strictly to the spirit and letter of the author and assumed that the writer had one definite thought which was expressed in natural everyday language. He mercilessly exposed the corrupt doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. His writings inspired the friends of reform and furnished them with most of their deadly ammunition, 
We can hardly overestimate the influence of Calvin in furthering and safeguarding the Reformation. Calvin was a master of patristic and scholastic learning. Having been educated in the leading universities of his time, he possessed a thorough knowledge of Latin and French and a good knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. His principal commentaries appeared in both French and Latin versions and are works of great thoroughness. They are eminently fair and frank and show the author to have been possessed of a singular balance and moderation in judgment. Calvin's work had a further effect in giving form and permanence to the then established French language in much the same way that Luther's translation of the Bible molded the German language. One other testimony which we should not omit is that of Arminius, the originator of the rival system. Certainly here we have testimony from an unbiased source. Next to the study of the scripture, he says, I exhort my pupils to pursue Calvin's commentaries, which I extol in loftier terms than Helmick himself. Helmick was a Dutch theologian. For I affirm that he excels beyond comparison in the interpretation of scripture, and that his commentaries ought to be more highly valued than all that is handed down to us by the library of the fathers, so that I acknowledge him to have possessed above most others, as rather above all other men, what may be called an eminent gift of prophecy. The influence of Calvin was further spread through a voluminous correspondence which he carried on with church leaders, princes and nobles throughout Protestant Christendom. More than 300 of these letters are still preserved today, and as a rule they are not brief friendship exchanges, but lengthy and carefully prepared treatises setting forth in a masterly way his views of perplexing ecclesiastical and theological questions. In this manner also, his influence in guiding the Reformation throughout Europe was profound. Due to an attempt of Calvin and Farrell to enforce a too severe system of discipline in Geneva, it became necessary for them to leave the city temporarily. This was two years after Calvin's coming. Calvin went to Strasbourg in southwestern Germany, where he was warmly received by Brucker and the leading men of the German Reformation. There he spent the next three years in quiet and useful labors as professor, pastor, and author, and came into contact with Lutheranism at first hand. He had a great appreciation for the Lutheran leaders and felt closely allied to the Lutheran Church, although he was unfavorably impressed with the lack of discipline and with the dependence of the clergy upon the secular rulers. He later followed the progress of the Reformation in Germany step by step with the warmest interest as is shown in his correspondence with various writings. During his absence from Geneva, affairs reached such a crisis that it seemed that the fruits of the Reformation would be lost and he was urgently requested to return. After repeated urgings from various sources, he did and so took up the work where he had left off before. The city of Geneva, located on the shores of a lake which bears the same name, was Calvin's home. There, among the snow-capped Alps, he spent most of his adult life, and from there the Reformed Church has spread out through Europe and America. In the affairs of the Church, as well as in the affairs of the State, the little country of Switzerland has exerted an influence far out of proportion to its size. 
Calvin's influence in Geneva gives us a fair sample of the transforming power of his system. The Genovese, says the eminent church historian Philip Chaff, were a light-hearted, joyous people, fond of public amusements, dancing, singing, masquerades, and revelries. Recklessness, gambling, drunkenness, adultery, blasphemy, and all sorts of vice abounded. Prostitution was sanctioned by the authority of the state and superintended by a woman called the René de Brodel. The people were ignorant. The priest had taken no pains to instruct them and had set them a bad example. From a study of contemporary history we find that shortly before Calvin went to Geneva, the monks and even the bishop were guilty of crimes which today are punishable with the death penalty. The result of Calvin's work in Geneva was that the city became most famed for the quiet, orderly lives of its citizens than it had previously been for their wickedness. John Knox, like thousands of others who came to sit as admiring students at Calvin's feet, found there what he termed the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on the earth since the days of the apostles. Through Calvin's work, Geneva became an asylum for the persecuted and a training school for the reformed faith. Refugees from all the countries of Europe fled to this retreat and from it they carried back with them the clearly taught principles of the Reformation. It thus acted as a center emanating spiritual power and educational forces which guided and molded the Reformation in the surrounding countries. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.